episode 287. The time for entrepreneurial physician leaders is right now. Today, I'm speaking with Dan O'Neill. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I'm speaking with Dan O'Neill, M-A-M-S. Dan says that in many ways, this is a fantastic time to be an entrepreneurial physician leader. We are in a place to reinvent the practice model, meaning finding ways to increase value while losing bloated business practices and labor and capital. It's more possible than ever to make a medical practice more efficient and effective with less overhead and at the same time meet the needs of patients in ways that are, you know, were impossible in the business model of five years ago and earlier. It's just a new world. And I don't just mean because of COVID. I mean, in all the ways that everybody, including me, has been squawking about for years. Consumerism, the rise of technology and its attendant expectations, Medicare running out of money, and employers who have cried uncle on rising healthcare costs and or gone out of business. The silver lining in everyone getting used to telehealth and aggregated FFS revenue tanking for a couple of months is that suddenly some of the cushy cha-ching reasons to keep the old model don't feel quite as much of a sure thing for the risk averse any longer. On the flip side, it's also a fine time for you insurers to step up. Consider what some of the plans are doing right now to help PCPs, for example, transition to value and help independent docs stay in practice at the same time. I could say the same for some of the self-funded employers. It's going to suck for you all if the PCPs not connected to consolidated health systems go belly up. Now is the time that you really can help them help you and everybody wins from a quality and cost standpoint now and down the line. My guest today is Dan O'Neill, M-A-M-S. Dan's a consultant who spent most of 2019 working in the Senate on the professional staff of the Health Committee, focused on issues related to healthcare cost mainly. Now he's doing consulting with entrepreneurial physician leaders and also startups. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dan O'Neill, welcome to Relentless Health Value. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let me ask you this to start. Do you think it's a safe way to proceed to just be like, yeah, FFS all the time. That's it. I'm done with this. It's not so simple to say, well, I'm just going to switch my revenues to a different model, right? There are a lot of organizational redesign, operational sort of systems, et cetera, that you need to build. And then you have to strike new contracts with lots of insurers. It's not simple. But that said, I do think that there's, there is quite a bit of evidence that when you look at organizations like a ChenMed or Oak Street Health, which just filed for their, their public offering, they are simply not financially exposed to this volatility. Oak Street said explicitly in their S1 that about 1% of their revenue relies on fee-for-service visit volume, which if you think about that, they are just completely insulated. It, it doesn't matter. So they focus their efforts on, okay, how do I safely and appropriately deliver care in the new environment, more virtual care. How do I make sure I have enough PPE for my staff? What are the new processes that I want to build? They can focus on those problems, which are hard enough in themselves, and they don't have to worry about huge revenue swings. Now, they're PCPs. So maybe the segmentation that we need to contemplate here is a couple fold. You know, number one is PCPs. Another one is specialists that do procedures. Another one is 
health systems, you know, that actually have hospitals that are doing inpatient stuff. Sure. Right? I think that's a good segmentation. Yeah. And this is kind of an approach that that's roughly consistent with the way Alan Kaplan is a physician in the in the DCRA, and I wrote an article in Nijam Catalyst recently. We talked about this a little bit, where for PCPs, the sort of straightforward answer is capitation and or various versions of shared savings, right? And the answer is a little bit more straightforward, but they do have to kind of commit to it, make the shift. For specialists, particularly those specialists that are dependent currently on either procedures that are often done in office or in a surgical center, or on distribution markups, which is to say buy and bill for either drugs or devices, it's a little harder, right? Because those are things that you can't so easily deliver in a, in a virtual sense. But I think they do have options, right? So for example, there are bundled approaches, for example, that would apply to a lot of specialists, where they're paid a certain amount of money to manage a patient's situation over a period of time. And it doesn't depend on whether they do a visit per se or a visit in May versus June, right? And so if you're getting an episode payment over 90 days, for example, you can move visits around as COVID waxes and wanes in your area, and you won't see that reflected to the same extent in your revenue. So you can insulate yourself a little bit there. They can look at moving away from some of the buy and bill economics. And this is going to be a tough one because this is extremely lucrative for oncologists, for rheumatologists. Exactly. And I just did a show with Dr. Aaron Mitchell where we went extensively into revenue generated from buy and bill. So, yeah, I think he very accurately describes the conflicts that come with that. It also creates a sort of economic, just business management challenge in the current situation, because if you can't bring patients in to infuse drugs or to inject drugs, allergists might be faced with this a little bit, right? If you can't do shots in the office or it's not safe to, you're going to lose a lot of revenue from distributing those products. But there are some options. Again, these, these some of these bundles can help because it moves the economics a little bit from the drugs. Obviously, many have considered bundles stepping stone to value-based care, but it's also kind of a middle place to mitigate risk to some extent relative to if COVID outbreaks in your area, to your exact point, you can kind of like, you know, A, utilize telemedicine and still get paid irrespective of what Congress or CMS decides to do. And secondly, you can move appointments around as necessary to keep your patients safe. Exactly. The basic goal being physicians, these specialist physicians trained for an incredibly long time and move looking at business models where, in effect, they get paid for their, for their expertise and their advice and for managing the care of the patient in the same way that a primary care doc would versus getting paid X percent on top of a drug they happen to distribute in the office. That drug could also be distributed through a specialized infusion service that might have the infrastructure or the equipment to visit patients at home, for example, and to continue care. They might be able to shift patients temporarily to oral medications at least for maintenance purposes, while they try to keep them out of the office during a, a COVID spike. All of these things can hurt the revenue if you're dependent on buy and bill, but if you can separate your revenue a little bit from those drug or device markups, then you can insulate your financial situation. Let me ask you this. You know, I've had a number of clinicians, you know, the owners of ambulatory practices, write emails asking basically what amounts to the same question. Given all that's going on, and you know, nothing for nothing what you just said, do you feel like health systems are going to buy more practices or do you feel like more previously purchased practices, like you know, the doctors that formerly were their own bosses are gonna exit 
those health systems and go back to being independent. Obviously, there's forces kind of for and against that. Do you have any opinions on what you think the net effect will be? I do think we have a, a risk of more acquisitions. I don't know that I would be focused primarily on hospitals acquiring practices. I think that that's a factor and it's something to, to worry about because we've seen a lot of that. I also think there's a reasonable chance you'll see more often private equity driven buyouts because you'll have you'll have practices that are sort of looking for capital practices that are looking to get through a transition to value-based care, maybe looking for support. And, and so that sort of backing is not necessarily a bad thing, right? There are a lot of successful examples of organized firms, MSOs, or even sort of private equity vehicles that can come in and, and sort of support a practice as they go through the transition. Of course, we also see how that can do if the investment thesis is very much about increasing prices, which is something we've seen in emergency medicine, anesthesiology, radiology. This is a double-edged sword. Yeah, exactly. And even at much harm, really, to the doctors in the model. Like, you know, you just see all this stuff with Envision, you know, not treating their doctors super nice, you know, so they're making money hand over fist and they're letting physicians go, you know, in the (laughs) emergency rooms in the middle of a pandemic, right? It starts from why are they making the investment and what is the thesis? There, There are plenty of venture firms that have backed interesting companies like Allidade, right, that come in and help a practice make a transition to value-based care. And they're very much betting on this future model. But then there are also strategies and a vision and team health certainly fit this bill, U.S. Anesthesia Partners, where the strategy is to raise prices, right? And the strategy is to drive volume of episodes in the ER of radiology of anesthesiology. And if that is your strategy and you're backing it with debt, and volume dips or there's any pressure on prices, the main cost are clinicians and you have to cut that somehow. Those are just two very different approaches and we can sometimes conflate private equity money in this way. It really depends on what the goal is. Here's the thing, you know, at the end of the day, PE has one mission for investors to drive returns. That's true, but I think it depends a little bit on, there are PE firms that, that sort of are, are after the equity risk. And this is more of a venture capital type model, right? Where they're trying to grow and they're trying to help support, say, a business through a transition period. And that's a real thing. In that case, there's usually relatively little, if any, debt involved. And then there are others for whom it's a financial engineering exercise. And so Envision Team Health, the idea is I'll come in, I'll load this up with debt, I'll inflate prices by using surprise billing as leverage, I'll pay back the bondholders and then cash out. There's nothing about that that is really oriented towards improving care or major operational shifts. And I think it's important to sort of separate the kind of venture-oriented, growth-oriented, business-building-oriented approach from the financial engineering approach. Anyway, so in any case, I would expect, to answer your original question, I would expect, yes, that there will be probably more acquisitions of both types just because this volatility will cause some practices to look for support or look to get bigger or maybe just look to retire. So if I am an independent physician and I have my own practice at this juncture and I'm looking forward, I don't know that I'm willing to bear this amount of risk moving forward. Everyone keeps saying, who knows how long this pandemic is going to continue, number one. So you want to keep doing what you're doing for how many months or maybe years. You know, secondly, 
I guess once you open up Pandora's box, this could happen again. Do you want to go through this again in three years? So I'm thinking to myself, I need to move to a value-based model, maybe just so I can sleep at night, right? And maybe help my patients avoid financial toxicity and all the other things too. I think, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe there, there was sort of one option on the table, which is let the local health system buy you. But it sounds like now there's just like how many billions of dollars just get, is getting pushed into the healthcare sector. So it sounds like it's a matter of making sure that you vet very carefully the money that you're getting so you don't wind up in a really bad place where somebody's beating you over the back trying to tell you to see 50 patients a day and charge excessively for it. It sounds like the PE or the money that you get, the venture that you get, it comes with strings, obviously. It does. So you want to be careful about your partners, of course. I would also say I would want to deliver to practice in this situation. I would want to deliver what I think would be an optimistic message, which is in a lot of ways, I think this is a fantastic time to be an entrepreneurial physician or entrepreneurial physician leader. I think there are huge opportunities here. There are ways to reinvent the practice operations and make them more productive lighter real estate footprint, more virtual care, ways that actually do bring in more money and make the practice more efficient. You can operate a practice with fewer staff, for example, fewer medical assistants, receptionists, et cetera. Capitation among its other advantages from a predictability standpoint is simpler in the back office, less billing hassles, X dollars per patient per month. You don't have to code claims. I'm glossing over encounters and, and there are there's still going to be data collection for quality scoring. But in a lot of ways, it's a simpler business. And I think for a lot of clinicians, it means they can focus on the clinical care, which is why they got into this profession in the first place. I think that's an opportunity for specialists. The opportunities to try bundles and other versions of value based care in the specialty arena, the option to explore peer-to-peer consults or what are often known as e-consults as a way to actually open up your network and deliver your expertise to a wider range of patients. There are a range of platforms, Rubicon, Sitka, Thea Health, Arista, that are making these tools available to specialists that, that want to sort of serve a broader range of patients, often by enabling or empowering primary care docs through peer-to-peer consults. That's a potential revenue stream, and it's a potential revenue stream It could actually rise when fee-for-service, when sort of in-person care drops, because there'll be a greater need for the primary care physician to manage the patient through more situations, and they may need specialist help, right? So there's a way to sort of set a hedge into your business. Anyway, these are all opportunities for clinicians that have this entrepreneurial mindset that want to stay independent or become independent and actually create a business that can thrive, whether it's in a volatile COVID period or after and can also be a business that improves the experience of care for patients, the quality of care for patients, and the resilience and efficiency of the system in the medium term. So I want to be very sort of encouraging here. I think there's a lot of opportunity and there, there are a lot of good partner, financial partners and technology partners that are available and would be interested in helping with this transition. Yeah. So I loved what you just said. First, you said lighter footprint. So, you know, obviously, if you're counting on telehealth continuing... Maybe because you are doing bundles or a more capitated model, wherein, you know, if you're getting paid for a complete episode of care, then you can use telehealth to your heart's content because you're getting paid regardless of how you see the patient. It's up to you. So exactly like you just said, you don't need as big of a waiting room. You don't need the giant parking lot. You don't need probably most expensively 
a lot of staff. Do you have any advice to anybody on and sort of like how you go about conceiving of that? You know, is it something like you just start firing people or like, is there a way to <laughs> contemplate this maybe a little bit more methodically? What I would want to take a look at is what services am I currently delivering? And kind of what is the revenue mix that results from that? So how much of my revenue is based on visit volume, just the interaction with patients and counters per se? How much of my revenue is based on doing procedures? How much of my revenue is based on doing lab tests or x-rays in the office? How much is distribution of products, drugs and devices? Right. And then start to think about, OK, well, what can be done virtually? And that's going to be some slice of the encounters, probably, but not all, because some things require a physical exam. Then think about, OK, in the cases where I do need some physical contact with the patients, do I have operational options to do this differently? Can I find a way to have them get the lab test elsewhere? Patient service center for for Questor Lab Course A and I still get the results and then I can consult with them. Or some clinicians are experimenting with you know, blood pressure cuffs and pulse oximeters that can be used at home and still provide data that, that you think of as needing to collect in a physical in-person sense, but can still be available to the clinician. So you sort of take that initial block of encounters, look at how many you can deliver virtually today, and then you look at how you can tweak your operations to deliver a larger fraction of them virtually, and that should insulate uh, to some extent. Then you want to take a look at what your options are for shifting some of the fee-for-service revenue or the distribution-related revenue from buy and bill to something else, whether it's capitation or bundles, or in some cases, there are even scope for population-based payments for specialists. I mean, there are existing examples of, of labs, for example, taking a per member per month price from an IPA to do all lab testing for that group of patients, that patient panel over a particular period of time. It's conceivable to do that as a specialist and say, I will be the orthopedic surgeon, or I will handle all orthopedic consults for this group of patients over this period of time for X dollars per patient per month. That's entirely possible. You got to take some risk. You got to experiment. You got to do the math, but it's definitely possible. And once you do those kind of contracts, you now have guaranteed revenue, predictable monthly revenue that happens whether you did 100 visits that month or you did 10. Starting to look at these shifts, I think can, you, can, you can build a more kind of insulated business. So it's all going back to the data, like where's your revenue coming from? And then trying to figure out exactly how you're going to reconfigure it in more of a value-based model. We are talking about revenue here because one of the things, obviously, that's really important to drive healthcare value in this country is making sure that we have enough independent, just doctors in general, but happy doctors. Yes, right, <laughs> yes. So, you know, I'm kind of inferring at a certain level that some of these value-based, more capitated contracts are a little more, you know, enable doctors to do what they went to school to do than, than some of this fee-for-service rodeo that we currently have going on here. Here's the thing. The reality of the situation is that if we're going to reduce healthcare costs in this country, somebody's going to have less money in their pocket, you know. I think that's true. So we can't on one side be like, we've got to reduce patient toxicity, but I still want to take home the same amount that I've been taking home, regardless of its impact on those patients. Yes, I think that's true. And I think, you know, we have hard conversations about reducing the underlying prices, of course. But I also think it's fair to say that there are thick layers of operational overhead and markups and distribution margins where we can, with a little bit more creativity and competition, we could actually compress some of those things. 
And it's conceivable, for example, in a lot of these cases, I would argue, for a practice to look at the situation and say, okay, I might shift my revenue and in parallel shift my operations toward a more productive, efficient model. And that shift might mean less total revenue coming into the practice, but the same amount of of profit or income coming out of the practice to the clinician. That is very possible, right? Because you can find ways to deliver services that might have a lower price point, but if you can deliver them more efficiently or with fewer staff or with less rent on your office space, and all of that sort of offsets some of the decrease in, uh, in say, drug markups or procedure fees, whatever it is. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. And it's funny because just weirdly, coincidentally, I was listening to something with Eric Reese, who wrote the Lean Startup. And he was kind of talking about that exact same thing, you know, just that there's a lot of bloat. And when the times are good, the bloat starts to increase. But if you get rid of the bloat, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting, you know, the reason they call it bloat is because it was no value. So you're basically just paying for stuff that has limited values, you know, don't provide any additional quality of care or experience of care or anything to to patients. It's just some level of unnecessary. And, and you know, included in that is exactly like you said, the, like the waterfall in the lobby or, or whatever that costs something. It's not a dollar that's going to the actual purveyor of the care, i.e. the clinician, the doctor, the nurse. Yes, or it's going to a, a different provider organization or different product company, right? And this is why in some ways this is such an interesting opportunity for primary care physicians in particular, but really any specialist, any clinician that can do cognitive work and wants to deliver conservative care. Because there is with saving, with shared savings structures and, and population-based payments that have shared savings bonuses and penalties, there's an opportunity to actually do well by doing good, by reducing some of the wasteful care through better care management, population health and actually capture a share of that savings, right? And you see that in the financials of something like Oak Street. You see that in the practices that are working with, you know, a company like Allidade, right? In both cases, the goal here is that they can, there actually is a profit opportunity. They can, they can quite literally do well by reducing some of the waste that is currently being funneled into corners of the system that frankly deserve to see a little more financial pressure. You know, one of the things that has been brought up a number of times by a number of individuals, both on the show and off, is clinicians who actually want to move into bundles or a PCP who wants value-based capitated model with a local employer. And the difficulty that they are having getting payers, meaning the employer or the health plan, to actually pay using those models. Yeah, huge problem. Yeah. I also see kind of a limited understanding of what a payer is going to value. I've seen a lot of what I would consider pretty ineffective pitches <laughs> or maybe no pitches. So it's like a, a provider who's kind of like waiting for someone to come to them with the offer of a value-based contract as opposed to sort of actively prospecting for somebody looking for one, number one. But then number two the first thing that that payer asks is, show me the numbers, and they kind of don't have any. There's kind of this fundamental disconnect, and we've all sat at tables, you know, like you, me, you know, anybody who kind of sits in between stakeholders has sat at any number of, of tables where, you know, you're sort of sitting in the middle translating for everybody because the stakeholders have kind of a limited 
understanding of where the person sitting across from them is coming from and where their vested interests lie. And I see the lack of uptake in value-based incapitated models to some extent driven by the fact that it requires stakeholders to work together and to collaborate and to agree on what good looks like. And they don't necessarily even have the language to come up with those, like to have those conversations. I agree. And I think it's a big problem. And I think a lot, to just to be direct, I think a lot of health insurers need to be taken to the woodshed because they're just not, they've been sort of passive bystanders. They've been happy to collect the 15 or 20% markup on the underlying medical spend as that number keeps inflating. They're not particularly motivated to lower costs. And I think they're, they're in too many places, in too many situations, they're actually a barrier to this change. And that's unfortunate. But I also think, to their credit, or at least to some organizations' credit, you have organizations like BCBS in North Carolina and Massachusetts, where they are very proactively seizing the, the moment here and saying, look, if primary care physicians want to get out of fee-for-service, for example, we're going to provide a clear and manageable pathway to go to capitation. Frankly, I think all insurers should be offering that. That should be available. This is a good opportunity to affect real change, to make life easier for the physician, to make the system more predictable and resilient, to make the experience and the quality better for patients. And I think, frankly, if insurers are standing in the way of that, that is their problem. And, they're, and, and, uh, and it's something that we should be criticizing aggressively. And then I also think there really is an opportunity here for, you know, you're right. Innovation doesn't happen by customers coming to somebody and offering to buy a new product if they build it, right? And so I think to some extent, if you're a physician group or you're a hospital, you are the producer in this situation. And innovation usually happens when the producers look at the market and see an opportunity and come up with a new package. It's not easy to do. It's incredibly difficult. But if you're just waiting around for change, it's probably not going to walk in the door. So I think the, the opportunity here is first, yes, at the sort of system level, we should be pushing and criticizing and, and sort of flogging the insurers to, to make these changes. But we also want to be supporting physician groups and hospitals that want to go in this direction and are interested and have ideas, but maybe need a little help, right? Analytical help, help with contracting maybe some capital to get through the transition process, all of these things. And, and I think that's why I get interested in, in the organizations like, a, like an Allidate or a ChenMed or an Oak Street that are all out there trying to, to provide this supportive layer. Let me just ask you one question and then I have one comment. Relative to private equity or venture that we were talking about before, do you feel like this is actually a reason why a provider might want to begin to work with some of the, you know, get some money from somebody? Because at the same, whenever you get money from somebody, you also get their help at some level. And I, I feel like there's, you know, one of the things that providers probably need some help with, I, you know, there's no marketing classes in medical school, last I checked. There's no classes in how to provide a, produce a value prop or like do a burden of illness model. And that puts them at a definite disadvantage. And, you know, I've just seen it not go well time after time where, you know, you're getting somebody who just signed a contract with Lavongo to provide a service that 
probably a really good endocrinologist could provide and get just as good or arguably even better results. But like, why did the plan go with Lavongo? Like Lavongo just made $300 million this year. If you ask me, that's the dollars that are on the table for a really good (laughs) provider organization. That's right. And so the question, and this is kind of why I'm sort of, I think it's both an opportunity and a challenge for the groups. Because if you look at a Lavongo, or for that matter, you look at an an Oshi Health or Hinge Health, right, for musculoskeletal care, all of these, it's arguably an attempt to reinvent care delivery, the care delivery stack. And they're doing it with more virtual care. They're doing it with more remote monitoring tools. They're doing it perhaps with fewer physicians and more nurses, coaches, physical therapists, that sort of thing. But one way or the other, they're still delivering care and they become competition. And to your point, there's no particular reason, I would argue, that an endocrinology group couldn't have built something like Lavongo, right? Yes, it's a big entrepreneurial effort, but there's no particular reason that that can't be led by physicians. And there's no particular reason that you can't do the same if you're an orthopedic surgeon and you want to deliver virtual care that considers the, the whole experience, not just the surgery and then, ever, and then I never talk to you again, but the surgery and I stick with that patient all the way until they're back to skiing or they're back to going to work. Those are options that have, frankly, have always been there for these physician groups. And in a lot of cases, it was just more profitable to kind of do lots of surgical procedures. So, so yes, it's challenging. It's not easy. I really do not want to sugarcoat it or pretend that it is. Plenty of companies have failed trying to build something like Lavongo, but it's also an opportunity and the competition to some extent is coming. So just to summarize, because we talked about a lot of things, your kind of summary list of what the opportunities are for a provider in this environment to do well by doing good is consider how you're going to lighten your footprint, you know, get rid of the bloat that may not be necessary any longer, just given where we are in the technology continuum, et cetera. Number two, capitation is easier. I mean, that's one way to lighten the bloat because you don't need as many billing clerks. So from a, just even from a productivity or number of staff standpoint, capitation is an easier model. Plus it could be a little safer moving forward. If you're a specialist, that means bundles at some level. And then contemplate again as a specialist, whether you want to do e-consults or there's a number of second opinion companies that are around like exactly. Grand Rounds, for example. So there's a bunch of different ways to spread wings beyond the local patient market. Did I summarize that well? Yeah. Yeah. So it amounts to improving your productivity, trying to shift some of your volume-based revenue to predictable recurring revenue, trying to shift some of your distribution-based revenue from drugs and devices to more service-based or, co- or, or payments for, for cognitive work. And then it's building revenue hedges, which is finding service lines and, and offerings in which the revenue might actually go up when in-person visit volume goes down to offset these moments of volatility. And you put all those things together and nobody's going to be completely insulated against the shock as big as COVID, right? Or a huge recession, which unfortunately looks like we're sailing into. But you can insulate your business from that. You can set yourself up to succeed more consistently through a period of volatility. So Dan, talk a little bit about your consulting practice. Sure. Yeah, these days I'm mostly doing work for relatively early stage digital health companies that are trying to deliver tools and services that would be useful mostly to providers, in some cases to insurers, uh, in getting through this, this period, right? So remote monitoring tools, thinking about how we restructure and, and deliver care in a more sort of capitated, oriented, uh, population-oriented manner. And 
for me, that's it's it's just this very interesting moment for entrepreneurial energy and and to try to seize the opportunity. And I'm and I'm trying to make myself useful in that period. And where can people go to learn more about what you are up to to that end? Anybody can go to dponeal.com and get in touch with me. That's D as in Dan, P as in Patrick, O'Neill.com. Dan O'Neill, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. It was a pleasure talking to you and thanks again for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.